The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. When you think of eternity, what comes in your mind? It's really kind of hard for us finite creatures to get our arms around that, to get our thoughts around eternity. Uh, Some time ago, I read a survey of history from a secular writer. I think it may have been H.G. Wells. And he was trying to grapple with eternity. And he said, there was a mountain in a vast plain. And once a day, a sparrow came from a, va- uh, from a horizon far away and would take away from this huge mountain a single pebble and would fly and drop it into the ocean. And then he would come back and take another one and drop it into the ocean. And when the mountain had been leveled to the level of the plain, that was one day of eternity. Well, that's a secular writer trying to grapple with the infinitude of time. But the Bible talks about God as an eternal God. And as we look at the text today, it says that the Lord, that, that Abraham called on Yahweh, or the Lord, El Olam, the God of eternity. What an incredible title that is for God. And the text also speaks in a very plain and simple way of a covenant of a, an agreement, a treaty between two persons, from a, between Abimelech and Abraham concerning a well and concerning the relations that they would have in an ongoing sense. And so we have this immense God, this eternal God, and this rather mundane interaction between two people in everyday life. And that's the mystery of life for us as Christians, isn't it? It's eternity into time. And we have everyday business, and we have things that we have to do, and we have relationships with people, and we have a work to do here in this world. And we are calling on Yahweh El Olam, the eternal God. And it only occurred to me very recently the connection of the two in this passage, is in another verse, and that's in Hebrews. Don't turn there, but just listen. Hebrews 13, 20. And there it says, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. And then it goes on with the doxology. The blood of the eternal covenant. And at last I understood this text that we're looking at today is about a temporal covenant made in the eyes of an eternal God, but it's a picture of the eternal covenant that saves our souls. There is one eternal covenant, the blood of the eternal covenant that saves our souls. It was an agreement between the Father and the Son. It happened before time began, from eternity past. That's the language we use. Before there even was a sun or a moon or stars by which we set time. Before any of that happened, there was an agreement between the Father and the Son. That is the eternal covenant of Hebrews 13.20. And the agreement was that if the Father would give the beloved ones to the Son, the Son would pour out His blood for them. And he would die in their place. And he would make for them an eternal resting place. And so that's the whole message. I can say it just in a simple way. It's about an eternal covenant that takes aliens and strangers and pilgrims, 
like Abraham was, living in somebody else's land. And the king Abimelech said, now remember, you're living on my land. And Abraham dwelt for a long time in the land of the Philistines. He's an alien and a stranger. He's just passing through. But there is an eternal covenant made on your behalf, if you're a believer in Christ, to give you an eternal resting place. Jesus said, in my Father's house there are many rooms. I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. That's what the eternal covenant is all about. And the seven ewe lambs, they were a, a sign or a witness between Abraham and Abimelech that that well belonged to Abraham. And so also the blood of Christ is a sign and witness to us that God eternally has determined to bring believers in Christ to himself, that we would have an eternal resting place. Now, all the rest is just details. And those details are interesting to me. But it's the eternal covenant that I trust in for my salvation. That's what I'm resting in. You know why? Because the tamarisk tree that Abraham planted and the well that they bickered over, and all that, it's all gone. It's gone. And life is flying by, isn't it? Time is moving on. Every week brings us closer to judgment day. Every week we age. We see material things around us become old and decrepit and we have to replace them. We see trees that are planted die. But there is an eternal God who has made for us an eternal covenant in Christ. And he's saying, someday you will be with me in paradise. Now, I look forward to that. Now, the context here in Genesis 21 is of God's faithfulness in keeping his word to Abraham and Sarah. You remember at the beginning of the chapter, God fulfilled his promise at last, and little miracle baby Isaac was born. And God also fulfilled his promise to Ishmael. In other words, that he would protect him and care for him, even though he was, at God's command, cast out from the family. Uh, he and his mother Hagar went out in the desert, and God provided and protected Ishmael. And we talked last week about Isaac and Ishmael and their different promises. But we see in both cases God faithful to fulfill his promise. He's faithful to his word. The problem is that even the best of God's people are not faithful to their word. The scripture says all men are liars. And Abraham is kind of eating the fruit of his past behavior with Abimelech. You see, he told him a lie. He had a kind of a mixed witness to Abimelech. What do I mean by that? Well, Abimelech can look at his life and he can see God's hand of blessing on it. But he also remembers how Abraham behaved when he lied about Sarah and said, she's my sister. And that almost got Abimelech killed. And God in Genesis 20 spoke to Abimelech who was considering taking Sarah to be his wife based on the word that uh, uh, Abraham had given, namely that she's my sister. And he was going to take her, uh, but already God's hand of curse was on Abimelech and his household. They were physically ill and they, were, they had physical problems. They couldn't conceive and bear children. There were issues going on and God uh, warned him seriously, Abimelech in a dream, saying you're as good as a dead man because of this woman that you've taken because she's another man's wife. And then Abimelech uh, called Abraham in and said, what is this you have done to me? You have done things to me that ought not to have been done. You lied to me. And so as he comes and seeks to make a, a treaty, you see the, the, the mixed uh, witness here and the results of it. Look at verse 22. It says, At that time, uh, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. That's the good part. <laughs> but then he says, Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children, my descendants. That's the bad part. 
Don't lie to me anymore. Deal with me well. I fear you and I know that God's with you and he can wipe me out. He's a powerful God. He's the eternal God. And so because I'm, I don't know that I trust you, but yet I see God's hand of blessing, there's a mixed witness. Now, what does he mean when he says, I see God's hands of blessing or God is with you in everything that you do? Well, uh, realize that already Isaac has been born. I think uh, that this must have been a very striking testimony to Abimelech who knew Abraham's family well knew that they had no child, that Sarah was an aged woman at this point, 90 years old and beyond. And uh, Abraham, 100 years old, they had had no children all those many years. And now here's miracle baby Isaac. How could this happen except that God is with you in everything that you do? He also, I'm sure, saw at a lesser level the material prosperity of his life, uh, the, the cattle and sheep and uh, the possessions that he had, the silver and the gold. We've talked about that before. Abraham was a wealthy man. And there just was the principle of blessing. God spoke to Abraham. We don't have any record of it, but uh, it could very well be that Abraham and Abimelech had time to talk about the visions and the promises that God had made to Abraham. And so when he says, God is with you in everything you do, there was a history there. And so that's the good witness that Abraham presented. My God is a powerful God. He's a promise-making God, and he's a promise-keeping God. And see, now I have a little baby to prove it been waiting for him for 25 years since God first called me to this land, to Rome. And so he says to him, I see God's hand in everything you do. But he also says, I have a problem with you, so please don't deal falsely with me. Don't deceive me. Don't lie to me anymore, please. But deal well with me. And so he desires a treaty of covenant. With him. Look what it says in, in this verse. He says, Show to me in the country where you are living as an alien the same kindness that I have shown to you. Uh, he wants a treaty, a covenant with him. And in effect, he says, Don't forget that I was kind in letting you live on my land in this country where you're living as an alien and a stranger. He's saying, Don't forget you're a guest of mine. And uh, by the way, I'd like to introduce you to Phicol, the commander of my army. Do you think he's there for no reason? He's just there to be a friend, a witness to the covenant. No, I think there's a sense of, you know, I'm not bargaining from an inferior position. And so there's, there's a concern there. And there is, is Abraham reminded once again what Stephen said in Acts 7, 5 concerning the land and concerning Abraham. God gave him no territory here, not even a foot of ground in this land where you are now living. That was what Stephen said to the Sanhedrin. He didn't give him anything. And so everywhere he was, he lived in tents. He roamed through the land. He was a stranger and an alien in Philistine land. And this reminds me of what it says concerning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. It says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. As it is, they were looking for a, a heavenly country. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And so here he is. Here's Abimelech saying, please don't forget that you're here at my leave. You're here as my guest. And show me the same kindness that I showed to you. And swear an oath or a treaty of covenant friendship with me. And Abraham said very simply, I swear it. And so he made that covenant oath. 
The giving of the oath was sacred to Abimelech and to Abraham. It was a solemn ceremony of covenant oath-taking. And it says in Hebrews 6.16, the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. But there is still a matter to be discussed. And so Abraham brings a complaint to Abimelech. Even though he's an alien and a stranger, he still has a grievance. It says then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. Now this well Abraham had dug, or had had dug, it was his by rights. And when Abraham made this treaty with Abimelech, he testified to this very fact when he said, accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. So this was a significant issue to Abraham. And in my opinion, it is the issue that brought Abimelech and Phicol there to begin with. Even though I know that Abimelech said, look, I didn't know anything about it, just heard about it this morning. And I'm not saying that Abimelech was lying to Abraham. Perhaps he had only heard that specifically who had done it and what the issues were. But this was a very, very serious matter. Why? Because they were down there in the Negev. They were down there in the desert. And where they were living, water is life. Water is life. Wars have been fought between desert tribes over wells of water. And so this was a brewing conflict between Abraham and Abimelech. And yes, Phicol, the commander of the, of the Philistine army, was there, but Abraham had his army too. You remember that he had defeated, undefeated Keterlamer. He had 318 men he could put on a horse, at least he did at that point. But uh, those 318 men don't mean a thing. What matters is God is with you in everything you do. And there's a promise of blessing on your life. And Abimelech saying, I don't want to fight you over this well. Let's see if we can have a treaty. Let's see if we can make a covenant of friendship. Now, the search for water is a fascinating one. Have you ever heard of diviners that use like those upside-down capital Ys, you know, the sticks, and they walk around, and wherever the stick bends down, supposedly there's water underground? Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, was a water diviner before he found a better line of work in founding a mythological religion called Mormonism. But uh, he was a diviner, and he sold out his, his services um, to search for water. And why? Because you're never quite sure where this subterranean water is going to be. And it's extremely difficult and expensive to dig or drill a well. And once it's done and you hit water, it's, it's life itself. It's, like, it's better than finding, finding hidden gold in the desert. Because gold you can't eat or drink. But this meant life. And it seems that Abimelech's servants, his soldiers perhaps, or some of his men, had taken over this well and weren't letting Abraham use it. It's a very serious matter. I was reading recently about a French scientist named Alain Gachet. And he's working in the desert of Chad. And he uses space-age technology, uh, which is a certain kind of, of radar that goes 60 feet below the surface of the Earth and can find subterranean water. And so the space shuttle has gone over and, and has made a top, topological map for him. And he's put the coordinates in his in his GPS, uh, global positioning satellite system, handheld. And wherever he goes and he gets the coordinates, he says, dig here. And he's 100%. He's dug six wells and all of them have hit water. Well, why is this important? Because right now in the Darfur region of Sudan, there's a terrible civil war. And there are 200,000 refugees out there in that Chad, that desert in Chad. This is literally life for those refugees. And many of them are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They're suffering and dying because of the conflict in Sudan. And so this man is finding wells of water. And when he speaks, says, dig here, they dig. And they find it just about every time. About 300 years before the time of Christ, there was a, uh, an often forgotten kingdom called the Nabataean Empire. And the Nabataeans were Arab 
uh, in descent, and they were able to travel through the desert. And whenever threatened, like, for example, even by the Romans or the Greeks, they could retreat into the Negev, into the desert region, the very same area we're looking at today, Genesis 21, and no one could follow them there. The reason was they had a genius for finding or digging subterranean uh, water wells and cisterns, collecting rain, and then covering them over so that you couldn't tell them at all. And they had certain signs and symbols that they alone knew so that they could water their animals and themselves and survive, but no one following them into the desert could survive. Water is life in the desert. And so these Arab tribes are willing to fight over the well. Well, as he did before, Abimelech declares ignorance. He said, look, I, don't, I didn't know anything about this. Verse 26, I don't know who's done this. You did not tell me, and I heard about it only today. And so Abimelech is taking it very seriously, and uh, he deals with it seriously. That's why he wants a treaty of friendship with Abraham, for he fears the God of Abraham. And so we see in verses 27 through 32, the treaty at Beersheba. It says, so Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven, seven ewe lambs that you have set apart by themselves? He replied, accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. And so that place was called Beersheba because the two men swore an oath there. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. So this matter was sealed with a covenant. A covenant is a binding and serious, a solemn agreement between two or more parties. Now, we Baptists, not like the Presbyterians, we don't think a lot about covenants. But we should, because Hebrews 13.20 says that we were saved by the blood of an eternal covenant, an agreement between the Father and the Son. And no matter what we believe about infant baptism or the covenant theology, we are saved by that covenant, the eternal covenant. And so throughout the Old Testament especially, we see covenants coming in again and again. This is more of an everyday covenant concerning the well and the relationship that there would be between Abraham and Abimelech. And to seal it, Abraham gives a return gift of some livestock, um, the seven ewe lambs. My feeling is probably they were part of the original gift that Abimelech had given to Abraham. And he was willing to give back some of it just that there would be a good relationship between the two. It was a sevenfold witness. The seven lambs were set off as a special sign saying, every time you look at these lambs, every time you think about them or their offspring, you will remember, I dug this well. And at that place, the name of the place was called Beersheba. Uh, the meaning is slightly unclear. It's either well of the seven or well of the oath. But either way, it was a name commemorating the covenant of friendship between Abraham and Abimelech. Now, in the future, in chapter 26 of Genesis, this exact same thing is going to happen again. They're going to fight over this same well. This time it's going to be Isaac and Abimelech and Phicol. And then beyond that, this will be included in the land that Joshua conquers, and it becomes part of the promised land. So someday, Abraham's descendants will own Beersheba, such that it's said, from Dan to Beersheba, all of the, uh, the Jews assembled and made David their king. That was kind of a summary statement, Dan being the furthest north, and Beersheba down in the Negev, the furthest south. This was part of the promised land. And then having done that, uh, Abraham plants this tamarisk tree. It says, after the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol returned to the land of the Philistines, verse 33, and Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. And there he called upon the name of the Lord, uh, the eternal God. This would be an oasis of rest for a weary pilgrim like Abraham and his household. 
tamarisk tree is a, is a desert-dwelling tree. It's got very narrow, thin uh, leaves. doesn't uh, have much surface area, so not a lot of water um, evaporates off it. It can stay green 365 days a year. It's a great desert-dwelling tree, and it provided shade in a shadeless place for Abraham. The tree was a symbol of permanence in an impermanent world for uh, Abraham. And so it uh, symbolized Abraham's sense of rest and peace and security in his pilgrim life. And then finally in verse 34 it says, Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines uh, for a long time. So he lived there for a long time, but it's still the land of the Philistines. Do you notice that? Now this whole encounter with Abraham and with Abimelech, this is the first time we ever meet the Philistines in the Bible. Now, the Philistines later are going to be a major player in the book of Judges and then in Samuel with, uh, with David, with Saul, and with Samuel. Originally, the Philistines came from a place, biblically it says, a place called Kaftor. In Amos 9-7 it says, Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declare the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor? Now, archaeology has shown us that Kaftor is probably the, the island of Crete in, east, in the eastern Mediterranean. But archaeology has also shown that the pattern of lifestyle in the Philistines, the way that they did pottery, their language, and their, their entire uh, system was very similar to the Mycenaeans in the Peloponnesus. And Mycenae is the place that uh, the wars with Troy originated. King Agamemnon and Helen of Troy were Mycenaean. And Achilles. And it's fascinating to me that this is the exact same way that they would fight a battle. They would go and uh, face another army, and then they would send out their champion, like Achilles, for example. And, and then the other side would send out their champion, Hector. And the two of them would fight it out, and whoever won the whole side, they would win. It was all down to the two champions. Does that sound familiar at all? Do you remember a Philistine named Goliath that said, well, here I am and you're all servants of Saul. Send out a man and let's fight each other and let's see who wins. And if, uh, if you can defeat me, then we will be your slaves. But if I defeat you, then you... It all came down to hand-to-hand combat between two individuals. That's very Mycenaean. That's very Greek. And that's what these Philistines were, I believe. Praise God for David. He came out in the name of the Lord and took his sling and uh, down went Goliath. But unlike Achilles and Hector, he didn't drag his body around. He just beheaded him and uh, kept the head as a symbol of his victory. But this is exactly what the Philistines were. Now, why is this significant? Well, the Philistines were constant enemies of the people of God. But it needn't have been that way. Because you see, in Genesis 15, God listed the names of the nations that were to be wiped out to a person by the Israelites when they came in and took the land. The Philistines were not included among them. Why am I saying that? Because the Philistines could have lived in peace and under the blessing of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you remember what God said when God called Abraham? He says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And so here come Abimelech and Phicol, and they bless Abraham. And as a result, they receive a blessing. Well, what blessing did they receive? Well, they're still around when Isaac has twin sons, Jacob and Esau, who are 12 years old. That's in Genesis 26. Long life, long reign, peace and security. That's what God did for those Philistines. But at some point, they became enemies of the people of God. And they came under the judgment of God as a result. In Jeremiah 47, verse 4, it says, The Lord is about to destroy the Philistines, the remnant from the coast of Kaphtor. God means what he says. And to me, that's what Genesis 21 is all about. What God says, he means. The promises he makes, he keeps. 
The warnings he give, gives, he upholds those warnings. If you make a treaty of friendship with him through faith in Jesus Christ, he will give you eternal life. But woe to you if you oppose his son. Our God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. Now, the final note I want to note in this text is this issue of the eternal God. Look at verse 33 again. It says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. As I said, it's Yahweh El Olam. Our God is an eternal God. That means he is timeless. He is changeless. What God's omnipresence is to him concerning the boundary of time, his eternity is concerning the boundary uh, what uh, the eternity, eternity concerning the boundary of time. He never changes. He never dies. He lives forever and ever. He is the eternal God. And so, therefore, the name Yahweh is the great I Am. He says, I Am. Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I Am. That's the eternal God. And so it says also in the book of Revelation, He is the God who is and who was and who is to come. He is the Almighty. This is the eternal God. Now, humanity, us, we are bound by time, just like we're bound by space. We cannot be in more than one place at one time, and we cannot see what's going to happen even the next instant. We don't know anything about the future. But God sees the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. He is the eternal God. We mark time by the passing of events, but God does not. And so, about 500 years later, a descendant of Abraham named Moses wrote a beautiful psalm. In Psalm 90, verse 1 through 4, this is what he said. He said, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch of the night. Now Moses, who wrote that, traveled from place to place to place with the people of God before they entered the promised land. So like Abraham and like Isaac and Jacob before him, he was a pilgrim, a stranger, a wanderer on this earth. And can I say to you, so are you. You may think you have a permanent home. You may think you have an address. You may think that the things you possess are really yours. You may think that situations that you're in are lasting and permanent, but nothing that you can see with your eyes, nothing that you can hear with your ears or experience in this physical world is eternal. Nothing. Not the relationships that you treasure. I'm talking about human relationships. None of them. But spiritual things, they are forever. Our God His eternal nature, that's our only hope. And so therefore, we trust in a God who before eternity even occurred, before anything was created, he made a blood covenant with Jesus that we would be saved. Now, what applications can we take from this? First, in a very simple way, living a life of integrity before a watching world. Jesus Christ came to bring a kingdom. He is the king of heaven. And he came to testify to a kingdom. And when he was standing in front of Pontius Pilate, do you remember what he said? Pontius Pilate said, so you are a king then. He said, you are right in saying that I'm a king. For this reason, I came into the world. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. All on the side of the truth, listen to me. So Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of truth. How can we witness to the world if we lie? How can we present to 
the Abimelechs of our world, the people who are observing our life, any kind of a witness at all, if we're not living up to the calling that we have received, if we're dishonest, if we're deceptive, as Abraham was. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The gospel that we preach, the gospel that we believe, is a message of truth. And Christians are told and are called to love and to obey the truth. Consistency, therefore, is the key to our witness and the witness that we present to the watching world. Listen to what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4.2. He says, We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of truth. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And so, basically, live very carefully in this world. Be careful that you mean what you say and say what you mean. Wives, don't lie to your husbands. Husbands, don't lie lie to your wives. Children, don't learn the habits of telling falsehoods to your parents. It's very hard to undo that habit. It's very hard also, secondly, to undo the poison and the impact of a lie in a relationship. What is on Abimelech's mind as he comes to Abraham at this point? You lied to me. So how can I trust you? And when a lie has come into a significant relationship with a husband, wife, parent, child, friend, friend, it's very, very difficult to undo that lie. The only thing you can do is hope that, as in Abimelech's case, grace will cover the transgression and the relationship can continue to flourish. To say, I was deceptive. I am a liar in my heart, but God is transforming me. And thank you for being gracious. Thank you for believing the covenant that I'm making with you that we'll have a good relationship between the two of us. But a lie can be very, very difficult. And therefore, you know, we urge on the front end before sin, don't do it. On the back side, grace can cover. But don't lie. It's a poison in a relationship. Thirdly, we see from this account how to deal with conflict. The world is full of sinners. And therefore, the world is full of conflict. It makes sense, doesn't it? And so there could have been a war, really, over this well. There could have been a big problem. But both of them rose above that and made a treaty of friendship. Now, those treaties, by the way, are only as good as the characters of those that make them. You know how many treaties Hitler made before World War II and broke? How many promises he made and broke? And so you can make a treaty, but it's not worth the paper it's printed on if you're a liar and a deceiver. But we can see here the efforts, as it says in Scripture, live at peace with all men as far as it it depends on you. And that's what this text calls us to. And finally, I can't end except with Jesus Christ. Sometime later, Jesus was sitting by a well, not this particular well, but another well that Jacob had given to the descendants, to his descendants, and was still being used after all those many years, 2,000 years later, still being used. And Jesus was sitting there, and a Samaritan woman came. And Jesus wanted to talk to her about a different kind of water. Yes, you come here every day to draw water because you need it to live. But I want to talk to you about something else. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is speaking to you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, Jesus said to the woman, enticing her into a discussion. And then she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give him will become within him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you know that? 
Have you experienced that? Are you experiencing it right now? Are you satisfied with Jesus? There's all kinds of muddy wells around that seem to promise satisfaction, but which don't. And when you drink from them, you'll thirst again. Whether material prosperity or popularity or worldly success or human relationships or any one of a number of other counterfeits, they are all wells that will not satisfy. But Jesus has come to give you life and give it to you abundantly and eternally. Are you drinking from him as a deer pants for water? Are you hungering? Are you thirsting for fellowship with God? Jesus Christ came to give you that very thing. He is the Lord, the eternal God. He came to give you eternal life. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.